Amen. So thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. It's good to see all of you. Uh, if, you're, if you're wondering why we've compressed things this morning, it's because it's, it's, it's a special Sunday this morning for us as we install Brandon Luntz as an associate pastor in our church. Now you'll you say, well, wait a minute. I thought Brandon has been a pastor with us for a long time. Well, he has been. I'll explain the significance of that in just a little bit. Um, but as we do that this morning, I just want to call your attention to you. So we're going a little different direction. That's why things have been a little different this morning. And I just want you to notice how crowded it is in the room this morning, which is why in just a few weeks we're going to go to two services. And just again, one more heads up, that we've done that before, uh, and we're going to do it again, and probably we, th- we hope do it again in a way that means we probably will never again, at least not in this facility, be a church of just one, uh, one worship service, which is sad but also exciting. You with me, both those things at the same time? Okay, and so just get on board. You're going to be getting phone calls. We need help. We need all kinds of help, so be ready for that. So there's lots of really, really great things happening in our church, and I hope you know that, and I hope you're as excited as I am about all that stuff. And so uh, this morning as we do this, we're going to need a little bit more time at the end of our service. Uh, so we might, it might be a little, just a little longer service. Um, I feel like we can do that because in, two, in three weeks, whenever we go to two, then we're going to have no choice, right? We're going to have to be done quick. So some of you are like, whoo, can't wait for that. So we're going to just take every opportunity from here to there to stretch it out as much as we can. Uh, and this morning might be a little bit of that, so just be aware of that. And we won't go, we, we'll, get you, we'll get you to lunch by 1 o'clock, I promise. I'm just kidding. Long before that. Just maybe a few minutes longer than we're usually uh, used to. So um, what a great opportunity for us as we do this this morning then to talk a, a little about, think a little about pastoral ministry which honestly is a little scary for me because it means I have to be vulnerable a little bit as I explain what pastoring feels like to a pastor and how you do it well. Uh, And so, you know, the question comes, then why do this? Because, you know, there are only uh, three or four of us in the room that are pastors. I mean, isn't that a little selfish for you guys to talk about what you do when there are 300 people here? And I really have two reasons uh, for, for going in this direction. And the first is that I think that we should talk about pastoral ministry because, number one, the way pastors work in the church is a picture of the way God works with us as his people. So one of the ways the church learns about what God is like is through their pastors, no pressure. So in talking about a pastor's heart, we are meant to learn something about God's heart. And that's important. And so the metaphor that dominates the passage we're going to look at, if you want to turn there, with, and just, we're going to read it in just a minute, in Acts 20, uh, the, the metaphor that dominates is a shepherd and his flock, the church. So pastors are shepherds, not entrepreneurs, not CEOs. They're shepherds because God is a shepherd. And we read about that in Ezekiel 34 and John 10 just a minute ago. And we need to know him as shepherd. I mean, don't you love that song, the Lord my shepherd leads me, leads me? I mean, I love that song. It's one of my favorite songs. It's one of my favorite metaphors of who God is in our lives, that he is a shepherd. And the way that we come to know God as a shepherd is through the pastors that shepherd us. So pastors are meant to image God to the church. Uh, The second reason I think we ought to do this is that the way the pastors work in the church is a picture of not only of, of how God works with his people, but it's a picture of the way that we should all work with one another, that we should work with the people in our lives that we're called to care for. So biblically, if you're a husband or a wife or a parent or a business owner or a teacher or a boss or a neighbor, you're a pastor. Leaders shaped after the image of Jesus don't lord over others, they shepherd. If God is a shepherd then we are sheep 
okay? And that's meant to be a little bit like, that stings a little bit, doesn't it? Because the thing about sheep, the sheep are animals of little brain, as, as Winnie the Pooh would say. Uh, we, are, we are animals of little brain. We are, sheep are stupid and defenseless and always getting into trouble that they can't get themselves out of. So you and I, what we learn from that metaphor is we need looking after. And, and of course, the Lord does that. But what we're meant to be as a community is we're meant to do that for one another too. So in pa- talking about a pastor's heart, we discover the heart we're to have for one another. And particularly, I want you to think about, particularly towards the people that you are obviously meant by the Lord because of the position that you occupy to care for. And that's important too. And so we want to talk about what it means to be a pastor, but we want to see that there's application for all of us in these things. And we're going to do it from this amazing, amazing passage, at least for me, but maybe it's this way for me because I'm a pastor, uh, in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, you can. Uh, Otherwise, I think it's printed for you in the worship folder, and it will be uh, put on the screen behind me as well. So let's, let's read this passage here. Really, Paul discloses his heart. Uh, to the, the elders in Ephesus whom he's been ministering among for many, many years as he's gathered with them to say goodbye because he's going on to Rome where he will eventually be killed. So it's a really, really powerful, emotionally poignant passage. Okay, so let's read together beginning in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. We know what happened to him, what's going to happen to him. Except, listen to this, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. (laughs) I'm going where I know I'm going to suffer. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And here here comes the really important part. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the word of the Lord. Now you see in that text, I mean, isn't it a powerful text? It's a, if you're, uh, you know, no matter where you are, it's a powerful text. But for me particularly, it's a powerful text. And there's about two dozen things that we could talk about, but don't worry, I only picked six. 
talk about this morning, you think, holy cow, we really are going to be here for a long time. Actually, that, that is a helpful way for me to get through this quicker, believe it or not. So more points means a faster sermon, hopefully. But here are the six things that I want you to see. So we talk about a shepherd's heart, kind of the different components of that. You got to, in order to really live towards others the way that Paul lives towards these people and the way he's calling them to live towards the church that they pastor, and ultimately to mirror the way the Lord lives towards us, there are these six things. You got to know the task, number one. You got to also be reaching for the telos, the goal. You got to speak the truth. You got to do it with tears. You have to be willing to endure trial, and you better be bolstered by, your, by good theology. So if you're keeping track, those are six T's. Man, the Spirit's moving this morning, isn't he? So we got some good things to talk about. The task, the telos, the truth, tears, trials, and theology, or the job description of a shepherd, the goal of a shepherd, the tool he uses, the tenor of his work, the environment in which he works, and ultimately the power to do what Paul uh, is showing us here. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, a couple of caveats. The first is that I want you to say everything that we say about um, the way God deals with us as a shepherd has the gospel in mind. I'm not going to be as explicit about this this morning for the sake of time, but in John 10, Jesus presents himself as the ultimate shepherd of God's people who proves his heart towards those that, that he does love by doing what? Why is he the good shepherd? Jonathan already said it. His, his love for us is ultimately proved in the fact that the shepherd is there to do whatever the sheep need for him to do. And our Savior was there to do whatever we needed him to do for us. And ultimately that meant for him to lay down his life for us. So everything we say about the way God deals with us as a shepherd has that grounding in mind. But then secondly, just second caveat here at the beginning. I want you to, because we're ordaining Brandon, or we're not, excuse me, because we're installing Brandon. I hope I don't do that again and confuse things. Uh, you know, in talking with him this week, we want to make specific application to the next generation because that's his area of focus and it's his, his great burden too. So in all of our talk of, of shepherding, we'll have specific application, at least in mind, to our parenting of our children and to our working with teenagers and children in our church as a covenant community who have taken vows to one another to raise those children uh, alongside of parents in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So keep those two things in mind. As we walk through this text uh, really quickly through these six things that I've said, beginning here, well, I want you to see first. Let's just start with this idea of what is the task of shepherding? What's the job description? Okay, and so if you look at verse 28, you see the core of the text really is there where Paul says to these Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That is the pastoral job description. Now, something immediately stands out. The very first thing Paul says is pay attention to who? Do you notice that? Before you pay attention to other people, he says pay attention to yourself. Before you shepherd anyone else, be shepherding your own heart. Be invested in your own physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being so that your work with people is coming from the overflow of spiritual energy and vitality in your own soul. Love others from a place of fullness and rest, not exhaustion and need and codependence, he says. So if you're married, this means that the most important thing happening in your marriage is not what's happening in your spouse and all the ways they need to change. The most important thing happening in your marriage is what's happening in you. If you're a parent, 
Listen, the most important thing that's happening in the lives of your kids is what's happening in you as their parent. The most important thing happening on your block is what's happening in your heart, in your home. Self-care, we're told here, for the sake of caring for others is an act of love, not selfishness. Self-care for the sake of being better for the people you're called to uh, is a positive thing and not a negative thing. Or to say it another way, to continue to live, I'm preaching to myself here, okay? To continue to live and work in self-destructive ways that leave you, leave you exhausted and burned out and tired, even if you're busy taking care of others and that's why you're so tired, is fundamentally selfish and unloving. I mean, we all know in case of an in-flight emergency, you attach the oxygen mask to who first? Yourself. And then you do everything you can to help other people. Now, so beyond that, there are two things in this particular verse uh, that sum up the work of shepherding. Once we've taken care to, you know, get ourselves right at first. And I want you to see how Paul sums up the work with these two. There are two verbs there. The one is pay attention. Do you see that? Verse 28, pay attention. And then he goes on to say, and care for. So shepherds are really people who pay attention and they care for other people. In other words, they pair intimate knowledge with sacrificial commitment. So in, in pastoring, this means that a pastor has to, number one, know the sheep if he's going to shepherd them. He needs to know their stories. He needs to know their wounds and their sins and their hopes. And this obviously can be a challenge, even in a church this size. I mean, one person can't have intimate knowledge of 500 people, which is why as the church grows... One of the things you have to do is the task of shepherding has to be multiplied, which is exactly, exactly what we see actually here in the text. It's what Paul's doing here. He's giving the shepherding of this church away to these men because it's grown beyond his ability to do it himself. I mean, I, I may be the main preacher. I preach about 80% of the time here, but I can't be the main pastor. You understand what I'm saying? Like the person in the church who knows you best, whoever it is, the person who's heard your confessions, that's your pastor. I mean, and this is one of the reasons for pastoral burnout, by the way, is that pastors feel the pressure because of what they read in the Bible to be this for everybody. And so most of the pastors that I know, including the ones that I work with, I, we want to know everybody in the church intimately, but it's just not physically possible. You with me? But parents, if you're going to shepherd your kids... Listen, you have to have intimate knowledge of what's going on with them. you got to know who they're talking to on their phones. you got to force them to open up to you. And I'm giving you the green light to spy on them when they don't because you gotta have, you got to have the knowledge, right? you gotta know, you got to know what's going on or you can't do your work. And so kids, that's them loving you, by the way. That's your parents loving you when they do that. When you, know, you look over and they're behind a tree and they're picking, you know, coming out from behind the tree. See, that's not them being annoying. That's, that means you have good parents. If your parents send you off to your room with your phone for five hours and they'll check on you, that means you have bad parents. You got to know. If you're going to be a boss who shepherds his employees, you have to pay attention to what's going on with them. You have to have intimate knowledge, but then it's paired with sacrificial commitment and care for. So that second word there refers to the word of a shepherd. And it's why the translators choose the metaphor. So think of Psalm 23 or Ezekiel 34, 15, which we're memorizing. The shepherd so provides for the sheep that, and protects the sheep from danger that we're told they can lie down and rest without any worry. 
It's my job to fret over my sheep, says James Rebank, who's a shepherd in northern England. Uh, a shepherd or parent or, you know, a friend, whatever. Uh, a shepherd so frets over the sheep that the sheep need not fret about anything. Now, let me apply that. I want to apply every one of these uh, to pastors. And as I, as I think, because we're doing this with Brandon this morning. So for pastors, here's an application of this for pastors. Spurgeon said, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. And so for the pastor, character and spiritual vitality matter more than charisma and talent. The problem is, is that um, a lot of times the church values the wrong things. But I want to tell you, Brandon is talented, but what stands out to me as I think about him is his character. And I'm really grateful for that. So there's the task, okay? Secondly, we're going to be faster from here. Secondly, then, you not only have to have the task, but you need to have uh, the telos. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a Greek word, actually, uh, a theological word, and it means the end or the goal. So there has to be a finish line. There has to be a telos. That's what I mean by this. And the context of Paul's words in Acts 20 are important. Paul is saying goodbye. Now, why is Paul saying goodbye? Because there's a mission that is pushing him on. We're told that he's trying to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost in verse 26. And this journey to Jerusalem was taking him right past Ephesus, but he didn't have time in order to get to the feast on time to stay and spend time with these people that he loves so dearly. He's got to keep going, and, and he knew he would probably never see them again. He tells us that, doesn't he? And so the mission that he was on was taking him to new places, so he asked them to meet him to say goodbye. Now, you need to know this morning, and I didn't do this on purpose, but it's just a reality of where we are as a people. There are a lot of families close to our family that are saying goodbye to kids today, this week, as they send them to college, and that's a really important moment. And I want to say how you do that is really important. So the best relationships need a mission. Relationships are a means to an end. If you make the relationship an end and not a means to an end, then you do a couple things. You turn the relationship into an idol, and when you do that, you end up ruining this thing that, that you want and desire so desperately. It's why C.S. Lewis said that if you just want a friend, you'll never have any friends. Because the friendship has to have something to be about. There has to be some kind of goal the best relationships are those where there's something more important than the relationship. The relationship is the servant of something else. So you're always acting in the relationship in the interest of that greater goal. If, if it's not there, if that greater thing's not there, then, then the relationship itself is just an idol, and it won't work. There has to be a mission. And where there's a mission, there are goodbyes. Shepherding means there's a telos, there's a goal. And when you get to the goal, you say goodbye. So in the passage, the telos is the, uh, in this relationship is a church plant. Paul's been working with these men to plant a church. Well, the church has been planted. And what? Well, now it's time to say goodbye. And goodbyes can be emotional. I mean, they can be difficult. I hate them. But they're absolutely necessary. In parenting in particular, the goodbye is the goal. Are you with me? It's the telos, and I know, listen, I have a senior, so this time next year it'll be me, and you guys can, I told you, you know, you can like say, hang in there, hold on, or whatever, but, I, but I'm serious, I'm, I'm, I'm in for this, okay? That the goodbye really is the goal, it's the telos. The purpose of the relationship is not the relationship. The purpose of the parent-child relationship is that the child would grow up and say goodbye. 
And all the good times captured in family photos, those moments aren't the goal. They're wonderful and they're good and they're precious and you hold on to them for the rest of your life. But the goal is the goodbye because there's a mission. Children are arrows, the Bible says, Psalm 127. And parents must draw back the bow and aim them at this lost and broken world and let them fly. That's what we've been made to do. So your kids and your relationship with your kids, are the tel- if, if that is the telos of your parenting, then they are an idol and you will ruin them and you will ruin you. But let me apply this to pastors here, this sense of telos. And I want to say this, that the goal of pastoring, if this is the case, is to shape people who can be sent. Brandon does this really well too, I feel like, in getting our kids ready to be, the goal of student ministry is what? It's to get those kids ready to be sent into the next part of their lives, fully equipped to go to to these dark, dark places called universities in our culture and thrive there spiritually. The goal of pastoring is to shape people to be sent. The goal of parenting is to shape people to be sent. And that will mean having to say goodbye, and it's the least favorite part of my job. I hate it. But the goodbye means we've done our job. And so it's good. Third, so you got to have the task and the telos, but then the third thing is, is you got to have the right tool, and the tool is truth. Truth is, is the tool for shepherding. Paul calls these elders to a ministry of speaking and defending the truth. I look in verses 29 and 30. He warns them of fierce wolves who will disrupt the church by speaking twisted things, he, told, he, he, he says there. So these are false teachers bearing false doctrine that are going to destroy the church. So doctrine really does matter. Truth really does matter, and Paul's concerned about this. And then he reminds them in calling them to this of, their, of his own truth-telling ministry among them. Look, look at verses 20 and, and then down in verses 26 and 27. He says, excuse me, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And again, I am, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So twice Paul says that he didn't shrink back from declaring the truth to these Ephesians. It takes courage to speak the truth because generally... People don't appreciate it when you speak the truth to them. I'm mean, given the choice of flattery and truth. It's a pretty easy choice, isn't it? So there is a temptation to shrink back from saying things that are hard uh, for other people to hear that they desperately need to hear. It's a besetting sin for me. I'd much prefer that you like me. That's way, and here, here's the sin. It's way more important to me that you like me than that I do good to you by speaking the truth. So pray for me. Uh, we live in a culture that is increasingly allergic to truth and truth claims. Truth is viewed, get this, in our society, truth, a truth teller, a person who, the, the act of telling the truth is viewed as cowardly, while compassion for others is viewed as bravery. But in reality, it takes far more bravery to be a truth teller. Our society really, in some ways, gives us a tr- choice, either truth or compassion. And it defines those terms as being mutually exclusive. Christianity refuses to do so. The culture says what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to choose love over truth. And here's the problem. Christianity clearly says you can't love without the truth. Unless you know the truth, you won't know how to love. Jesus said you you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So love and truth aren't mutually exclusive. They're they're interdependent. C.S. Lewis, almost 60 years ago, believe it or not, that's why he was just such a prophetic person, 
He wrote an article, and you ought to look it up and read it. It really is powerful. It's called Man or Rabbit. Isn't that an interesting title? It addresses this problem. He was dealing even then with people who were becoming less and less interested in truth. They just wanted to know what works. Now, decades later, uh, you have churches who pride themselves on being anti-doctrine and so forth because, you know, we think that something theological is no longer helpful. We just need to get away from truth and just to method and just, like, deal with technique and method with people because that's what people want. Lewis was attacking this, and he said Christianity is truth. And if Christianity is true, then it is impossible that Christians who believe the truth and those who don't would be equally equipped for living, leading a good life. That was, his, that was his kind of thesis. The difference is knowing the truth. And then he gives this analogy. He says, and this is just kind of classic, C.S. Lewis. He says, suppose you found a man on the point of, of starvation, on the side of the road, and you wanted to do the right thing. If you had no knowledge of medical science, you would probably immediately give him a very large, solid meal. But as a result, the man would die. That's what comes of working in the dark without truth. So think, here's two people. This is Lewis. One believes that human beings are going to live forever, and they were created by God and so built that they can find their true and lasting happiness only by being united to him. And then over here is another person who believes that human beings are the accidental result of the blind workings of matter, that they are only going to live about 70 years, and that the greatest happiness of which they're capable is fully attainable by good social services and political organizations. He says, there, these are two different sets of beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. The one who is working, the, excuse me, the one who is wrong will act in a way that doesn't fit the real universe. And consequently, with the best intentions, the one who is wrong will be helping his fellow creatures to their destruction. Those are powerful words. I mean, he was not known as an orthodox person, really, either. But he had a real sense of truth matters. So much so, I mean, did you, did you catch verse 26? This is a really weird thing, isn't it, where Paul says, listen, for me, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. So parents, as you drop your kids off, here's my, here's my right, drop them off in the dorm tomorrow, do this and say, I'm innocent of the blood of you, right? <laughs> Go home and have a nice steak dinner or something. Because <laughs> that is the goal, that's what Paul's saying, right? He's, what does it mean? What in the world is he talking about there? It comes from these... These metaphors in Ezekiel 33 and 34 of the watchmen, you know, that there is truth that people in your life need to hear. And sometimes the Lord gives you that sense. Uh, and, and even the, the Bible says, this is, I don't want to get too far into this, and so I'm probably going to create more questions than, than answers here. But if there's truth that the people that you're covenantally obligated and called to need to hear, and if you don't love them by telling them the truth, then your blood will be, their blood will be on your hands. You'll answer for it in some way to the Lord. Paul's saying, not me. I didn't shrink back. I discharged the duty which was given to me to speak the truth. Now, to pastors, I would say this, Brandon, to you and Jonathan and I and others, John and those that are here, pastors are men, we're told in the Bible, who must give an account. Jonathan Edwards, uh, when he, when, after 26 years, this is probably the, the greatest uh, mind theologian slash pastor that we've ever produced uh, in America, and yet after 26 years of faithful ministry, his church fired him. So I don't stand a chance, okay? And neither does anybody else. You guys are going to be ready to get rid of me one day, and that's okay. But in his farewell sermon, his farewell sermon, the topic of it was this: You know, I'm leaving you. We're saying goodbye today, but we're going to meet again at the judgment seat of Christ. 
man, holy cow. No wonder, no wonder they wanted to fire him, right? Because that's what they, he, literally, that was his last word to his people. Bye, I'll see you in front of Jesus. And you're going to, and you're going to answer for the way that, that you, you did towards me. And I'm going to answer to the way that I did towards you because I'm a man who must give an account. Can you imagine? We are going to answer for the way we care for one another. So truth, that's the tool. Fourthly, we're getting there, I promise. Not just truth, but notice there's tears also. Truth and tears. Gotta have this balance, right? Verse 19, I lived among you serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. So don't get, don't get this idea that Paul was this lion. He was very lamb-like as well. That's what made him so unique. Verse 31, remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. So Christian truth doesn't just produce people who yell and scream and rant on social media. It produces truth that always comes with tears. Two things here. First, Paul's tears means that if you're going to shepherd, you have to decide ahead of time that you will live with a broken heart. If you invest in anybody, if you invest in anybody, even an animal, C.S. Lewis said, right? If you truly give your heart to anybody, they will at some point, in some way, break your heart because they're a sinner and they're broken. And broken people break things. And so you're wise to keep your distance if you don't want a broken heart. It's easier to stay disengaged and then lob truth bombs from a distance, but to decide to really get involved and to give your heart away to other people and to let them in, you're agreeing, you're consenting to the fact that you're ultimately going to have to live with a broken heart. You're choosing to do life through sadness instead of will. And that takes a tremendous amount of courage and emotional strength. But it's what you see in Paul, and it's what Christianity makes possible. See, this is, this is the argument for why Christianity is the, the best thing going. It's the best thing out there because in Christianity, truth is not a vehicle for the will. It's an act of love and service to the other person. So truth matters, but what the truth is matters even more. And, and this is the superiority of our, of our faith. The culture has such an allergy to Christianity because they've experienced Christians wielding the truth like a weapon. They see Christianity as a belief system which turns people into smug, self-righteous warmongers. That's not Christianity. That's something else. Our truth can't turn us into people like that. You see what I'm saying? So, so we've turned against religious people. We've turned against the whole notion of truth as a society. We've said the idea of truth itself is the problem. Uh, but, but so what we've done is we've turned against uh, Christianity and other religions, but with all the smugness and self-righteousness and warmongering that we've accused them of. Thinking that they have the truth has made Christians hateful towards those who don't believe. Throwing out the truth has made us just as hateful towards those who do believe, which is why we see what we see here is so significant, so important what Paul does here. We learn this, that the truth claims of Christianity should make us soft and humble, not arrogant and harsh. Why? Because Christianity is grace. See, verse 24, he's testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. So Paul's summary of his teaching is the gospel of grace. Christianity is grace, which means that God doesn't love you and I because we're better than other people. He doesn't love us because we're right and they're wrong. Grace means God came to us in our wrongness and he rescued us. And that profoundly affects the way we speak the truth to others. I mean, Christianity is unique and superior, I would argue, to all other truth claims 
in that it produces people of deep conviction but also deep humility, truthful people who are gentle and winsome and wise. I promise you, parents, your kids will forget most of your lectures. They won't forget your tears. So, so application to pastor, pastors, and I just, just another word, gentleness. So every time, every time Paul commands church leaders to confront the sin of those under their care, which we're called to do, he says you got to do it with gentleness. Galatians 6, 1, Tim, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 15. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, teaching, patient, correcting his opponents with gentleness. More of this on Facebook, please. Truth-telling is never harsh or impersonal. It's always humble, always face-to-face. You with me? Fifth, we're getting there. The fifth thing is trials. And this is really where you see the difference. So listen to Paul. He says down in verses 33 through 35, I coveted no one's silver or gold. You yourselves know these hands minister to my necessities. In all of these things I've shown you that by working hard we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul said, when I was with, with, when I was with you, I didn't act with, in any self-regard. I was only thinking about how to help you. Listen, to, I didn't relate to you on the basis of any need or demand, but only love. And that's why trials. John Piper is uh, the voice of evangelicalism calling Christians to suffering. And I, I remember uh, somebody asked him, you know, I'm kinda, I live in a white, middle-class, suburban neighborhood. I mean, what, this suffering thing, I'm not really sure what I do. What does it look like to embrace a life of suffering? And Piper's answer was brilliant. He said, just go find some people to love and suffering will find you. <laughs> Whew. Love is a trial because it has a cross shape to it. It's a choice to put the needs of others ahead of your own, to focus on distribution, not acquisition. To be in the relationship for the good of the other person and not for yourself, and that means sacrifice. Love is costly, it's messy, it's hard, it's a trial. But this is what we see in Paul. Not only here, but throughout the whole of the New Testament, this supernatural ability to put, to put all of his focus and energy into caring for the other person and not thinking about himself. He says, not keeping score, not meeting his own needs, not making demands on the other person, just love. Just doing whatever the well-being of the other person requires of you with no cost-benefit analysis. After all, as he quotes Jesus is saying, it's better that way. Trial. You gotta, you gotta be ready for the trial. If you're not in the middle of it now, it's coming, I promise. And so, a word to pastors, and my word here is just suffer. The call to pastor is a call to suffer because the minister completes what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. And there, of course, is nothing lacking in Christ's sufferings except the visible, tangible expression of it in the suffering of the pastor. That's our calling, and we know that. And that's okay. We've, we've, made, we've made, come to terms with that. But it's, it's the call for all of us. And then lastly, one last thought then, and that is to do all of this you can't pass up. You've got to have the right theology. Where does all this come from? Well, look how Paul motivates these men. It's significant. He says, back in that, really, verses 28 and 29, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, to care for the church of God. And then this phrase, which he obtained with his own blood. So this, this sense of theology empowers mission. As you shepherd, Paul says to them and to us, you lean into the good shepherd. If you're 
a father, you have to remember that you're only the father, lowercase f, and then you lean into the heavenly father. You, you with me? That his care for you and for the person you're trying to care for is the source of power for, from which your care for others has to come. And that's exactly what the Bible means when it calls God our shepherd. It means that he has intimate knowledge of us and that he is sacrificially committed to us. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He counts the hairs on your head. He bottles your tears. He knows your wounds, and he's absolutely committed to loving you sacrificially. Jesus gave his life to rescue you willingly, willingly, not begrudgingly, willingly. My favorite part of that, of that John 10 chapter is where he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This was my idea, he says. I didn't get talked into it. I didn't get pressed into it. It is my desire. It is my joy. It is the movement of my heart to be sacrificial in loving towards my people. This is our gospel. And it's why you can go the long distance with people and not give up because he will never give up on you. It's why you can risk a broken heart. It's why you can suffer. It's why you can give and not receive because that is the heart at the center of all reality sacrificial love that pushes past every resistance, every roadblock, every, every reason to quit. His heart is great towards you. His grace is sufficient for every goodbye, for every rejection, for every heartbreak, for every disappointment. His, his love is a current. Remember we sang at the beginning? It's a current that if it gets all underneath and around and over, that can, that can just propel you forward in love towards others. It's the only way to do this work. It's a hard work, I'm going to be honest, but it's a good work. Amen? And it's what we're called to. So let's pray that he would come and do this among us. So Father, now as we turn a corner to our service and as we just stop to meditate for a moment and take in uh, this truth that we've seen from this text, would you come and, and so compel us, compel us with a vision of your great love for us Paul wrote that it is the, the love of Christ that compels us, that we, uh, because we've been so loved by him, that we can now turn around and no longer live for ourselves, but live for the one who's loved us and gave himself for us. I just pray that would be true. So I pray you give us a vision for what parenting our children looks like, for what caring for the next generation in this church looks like, for what community groups look like, for, for what uh, shepherding our employees or... Um, the people that we work with or teachers towards their children or whatever the case might be, that you would let loose this morning an army of people committed to loving others and shepherding them the way that they have been loved by you. That would be an amazing thing. It would bring you much glory. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, you come and work in us to that end. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great job. You guys did a great job singing. Praise the Lord. Um, I know it's hot, but on your way out, Brandon and Rachel and their family will be out front. We have a meeting that's happening in Covenant Hall, so we're going to do a quick, um, brief reception for them out front. So please stop by and see them. Get a little, I don't know, something nice will be out there. Come and say goodbye. Uh, come and say, not, come and say, hey, glad you're here on your way. Goodbye home, okay? Don't say goodbye. He's not leaving. I got goodbye on the brain this morning, don't I? Uh, it's customary for the, the one that we install or ordain to uh, pronounce the benediction over us, so Brandon, come. So I guess I just need to relax a little bit. <laughs> and what did you say, have fun? No, have fun. 
Uh, I won't say much. Uh, it's already a little after 1130, but it's just, it's a, been a joy, a uh, privilege, a pleasure to uh, serve you, to get to know you, and to love you all. And I just look forward to what God's going to have to do uh, through me and through us uh, in this city and, and through each other uh, for whatever the future has for us. So we go, we go because the word of God is not bound, as Jonathan said, that it is unlimited power that is sending us. So please raise your hands for, for his blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his, turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. <laughs>